Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. And then last but definitely not least, let me introduce your speaker, uh, Dr. Shresh Shrikandi. Um, Dr. Shresh is someone in our space who, if you haven't been around, uh, you might not know him, but everyone else kind of does because he is such an avid educator. He's someone who's been around in, in a multitude of curriculums. He's been uh, in most of the annual meetings related to sleep. He's also an innovator. He's someone who's been involved in, in up-and-coming technology. If you ever heard of the Zephyr Matrix, he was one of the dentists who was helping fight for amazing titration, home sleep testing technology that was supposed to revolutionize the way that we view sleep and the way we view titrations and efficacy for patients. He's someone who loves this industry and has really dedicated his career to um, educating that. He's joining us all the way from Canada tonight and uh, is going to really help everyone get a fresh perspective on how sleep is killing our patients and how you can help save some lives. So Dr. Sharf, you want to say hello and uh, kick it off. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. Hello to everyone who is joining us. Uh, I see some names from Canada, from Halifax as well. Hello, the Canadian fellows here and all the Americans that are with us as well. It's a pleasure to be on the call tonight. Uh, thanks for the kind introduction, Chad. And as you said, uh, what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to provide a basic overview of a sleep and how it fits within a dental practice today. Uh, generally speaking, it's going to be a very more of a basic introductory talk, but we'll have some time at the end as long as you guys want to be around, as long as you want to stay around for question and answer so we can get everybody's questions answered before the end of the evening. With that being said, uh, should I just get going? Should I start with the presentation chat then? I think we're good. And while you're pulling it up, um, I just want to say a big thank you to our sponsors tonight. Um, we've got several sponsors. You can catch all of them on our webinar recording page. Um, but among them, we've got Better Night, Kettenbach. Uh, we also have Nearman Practice Management, um, ProSomnus, and one other, which I'm totally forgetting, which I will definitely get uh, razzed <laughs> for a little while later. Um, so, Oh, Dental Sleep Profits with Todd Warren. Guys, if you need any services related to sleep apnea, please, or dental sleep medicine, please feel free to reach out to us after our call today. Um, the companies that we've partnered with to bring you this education, they're top notch, they're top tier, uh, which I'm, you know, I'm sure Dr. Suresh can, can testify to as well. So thank you to our sponsors. And um, I think we're ready to go. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll get us started. And I've got about probably 45 minutes of a slide. So we're kind of going to get us to about 10 minutes before the end of the hour. And then we'll go from there. If there is any questions, anything in the middle of the presentation chat, I know you're monitoring the questions, so feel free to stop me anytime if needs be, and we'll go from there. Uh, this is my name, obviously, and I do have a conflict of interest. I always like to uh, mention that so everybody knows exactly what I'm up to and where to believe me and where not to believe me. I am the uh, Global Scientific Committee Chair for Prosomnus Sleep Technologies. Uh, other than that, I don't have any other relevant uh, conflicts of interest for tonight's presentation. Uh, let's start by talking about perhaps when was the last time some of you might have thought about any of these activities, you know, having more time to relax, having uh, more time to spend with our families, or if uh, only if I had more time to spend on shopping and going around and having fun, or maybe even uh, work on the last project at work that I've been thinking about completing, but just never get the time to do it perhaps having more time to pay attention to my fitness, go to the gym or spend time with my friends or even travel, especially with COVID, just the travel opening these days. And then all of a sudden you hear this familiar noise, right? 
we hear this noise that every morning wakes up millions of people across the world, hundreds of millions of people, because we live in a world that there is just not enough time for everything. We live very, very busy lives. Uh, the society, the culture uh, pushes us in that drive to be our best, and we're compromising the sleep as much as we can as, as much as we can get away with it. But at the same time, we're supposed to spend about one third of our uh, lives sleeping. That's quite ironic. We have all these things to do, all these uh, projects to attend to, but we're spending 33% of our total lifetime sleeping, unless you're one of these individuals that doesn't sleep much, Thomas Edison, uh, he believed that sleep is a tradition from the cave days of humans, and he believed that sleep is for losers, specifically his words. Uh, Janis Joplin actually was one of another celebrity that didn't like sleeping because she felt like she would miss out on parties. And of course, Jay Leno with his uh, late show, uh, he doesn't sleep. He only sleeps about two, three hours a night to my knowledge. But it's not a, a common thing only to celebrities. Actually, when you look at the North American population, 35% of the population today in North America are sleep deprived. That's it. That means one out of three people, they're not getting the amount of sleep that they need. And about 10% of population only, only 10% of population prioritizes sleep over different daily activities. As a matter of fact, it comes after socializing. It comes after uh, working out and it comes after even work in general. It comes in number four in terms of priority in our lifetimes. And when we look at actually the amount of time that we spend sleeping compared to our ancestors, it, uh, in the past hundred years, the amount of sleep went from nine hours to 6.8 hours or less. This is only one century and our number of hours that we spend in bed has been reduced by almost 20 to 30%. It's not a problem that is only uh, limited to adults. Actually, 97% of teenagers in North America happen to be sleep deprived and seven out of 10 college students happen to be sleep deprived as well. And this is the future of our society in general when you look at that. But what's the big deal? So much to do, so little time, so what? I'm not gonna sleep as much and I'm gonna spend most of my time being awake. Well. It's very important to look at the importance of a sleep in our overall health. When you start looking actually at the research and start paying attention to what is the role of a sleep in our overall health, we realize it impacts almost every aspect of our health. It has a lot of impact on our physical health. It has a lot of impact on our mental health. It has a lot of impact on our actually occupational and our work success, and more importantly, on our sleep. The best way of looking at it is, what happens is if we take sleep away. And what we do know is when we take sleep away from people for multiple reasons, whether they don't sleep because of insomnia or because it is a more of a uh, sleep restriction because of their lifestyle, or perhaps they have a sleep apnea and they're not getting the quality sleep that they need, we start getting this myriad of problems with their health that is pretty much eye-opening and shocking. In terms of our physical health, we know people that have a sleep apnea, untreated sleep apnea, they have 23 times more risk of having heart attack. That is, to put it in perspective, that's a lot higher risk compared to smoking or high blood pressure or even being overweight. We know there is almost 200% increase in uh, rate of strokes, 80% correlation with diabetes. In terms of fitness and BMI, we know there is a direct correlation between how our weight control and our metabolism gets regulated through our sleep and once we're sleeping. And without that, for those of you who spend a lot of time in the gym and in the fitness, you realize the key to success is always asleep. In terms of mental health, 
huge correlation between lack of sleep and depression and anxiety. Uh, and patients with a sleep apnea, we understand that because of their lack of sleep and their desaturation throughout the night, they have really high levels of cortisol throughout the nighttime, which directly relates to your stress hormone. Uh, Alzheimer's disease and sleep, there is a lot of new research shows that the patients that do not sleep, even one hour of lack of sleep per night increases your beta amyloid uh, accumulation in your brain. And beta amyloid is basically the protein that is the marker for Alzheimer's disease. So we understand that sleep plays a huge role in physical and mental health. There are actually a lot of research in terms of impact of sleep on our occupational success direct correlation with the minimum amount of sleep that you get in your income, and of course, errors and safety, and most importantly, the lack of sleep in our overall life, how it impacts our social life. We know sleep apnea, if we leave it untreated, it impacts people's uh, life expectancy by almost 15 years. If you leave people with severe sleep apnea untreated, the impact on our sexual health and our life expectancy, relationships, social life. So all of a sudden you realize there is this one phenomenon, simple phenomenon, yet it's impacting every single pillar of our health. As a matter of fact, for those of you who like, you know, getting really into health, the term total health, which is a very common term that we use these days, and that's what patients are looking for. We're not just looking for physical health, we're looking for total health, has four pillars. And those four pillars happen to be physical health, mental health, work and occupational health, and just overall life health. And sleep happens to be literally in the center of all that. And the problem goes above and beyond that, because we're looking at all these people that have a sleep apnea, they have a sleep disorders, which if you look at the numbers today, based on the stats, there is over 1 billion people worldwide that have a sleep disorder breathing, but 80% of these patients are remaining undiagnosed. What does that mean? I like always to put things in perspective. When you look at uh, diabetes or high blood pressure and other two chronic non-communicable diseases, uh, the rate of undiagnosis kind of ranges in that 20 to 30%. And sleep apnea arguably is the most common non-communicable chronic disease, inflammatory disease that is out there. 80%, eight out of 10 patients are walking through our clinics or walking through our practices and they don't even know that they have this problem. That is a big problem. You have such an important thing that impacts every aspect of our health. And a lot of people, over 1 billion people are struggling with it in terms of getting the proper sleep, whether because of a sleep apnea or other sleep disorders. There's over 80 different sleep disorders and 80% of these patients still do not know that they have this problem. The problem for dentists, unfortunately, doesn't stop there. So some of you might be saying, and I know people that are in this call, they're not in that group, but I had colleagues that they said, well, you know what? That's why we have our physical uh, physician colleagues out there. I'm just a dentist. I'm just focusing on dentistry. I do comprehensive dentistry, and all I care about is making sure my patients have proper oral and dental health, right? Well, the research in the last decade started showing to us that that is not possible unless you're taking care of their sleep problems as well. And I do want to kind of talk about that a little bit as well. So whether or not you're just a dentist, just a dentist, quote unquote, or you're one of those people that want to be part of their, your patient's overall health, you need to care about sleep. We know the correlation between sleep and bruxism. 
in the high 70-80% correlation. People that do BRACs tend to have higher prevalence of sleep apnea and vice versa. And what we do for management of their bruxism, including little brux guards, upper balance splints, could impact their sleep. And what we do for their sleep treatment could also impact their sleep apnea in their bruxism as well. How about a sleep and periodontal disease? There is a lot of studies that shows higher prevalence of periodontal disease in patients with a sleep apnea. When you understand the actual pathogenesis and pathophysiology of a sleep apnea, that's not very shocking. Sleep apnea is basically a chronic inflammatory disease. Patients with a sleep apnea have really high inflammatory markers, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, C-reactive proteins. And some of these uh, inflammatory markers are common in periodontal patients as well. And what we do know right now is research shows that it is very hard to manage periodontal disease in patients with a sleep apnea if you don't manage the sleep apnea as well. Well, how about sleep and orthodontics and pediatrics. That could be its own lecture. That could be its own webinar. We know the big correlation between airways, especially in growing adults and sleep and also proper craniofacial development. We know almost 50% of kids with ADHD have some sort of a breathing disorder, which could be simply related to their craniofacial development or lack thereof. And now we understand that a lot of those kids do have a sleep and breathing disorders, which goes undiagnosed for many, many years. And these are the kids that we can actually understand, we can diagnose and we can treat them and actually we can fix their sleep apnea as opposed to manage their sleep apnea. Last few years, we're starting to see a lot of studies that shows the correlation between implant failure and sleep apnea. Patients with a sleep apnea tend to have higher prevalence of implant restorative failures, which could be related possibly to the bruxism or possibly to the inflammatory markers. And obviously the correlation between sleep and TMD and pain has been studied for many, many years. We know there is a big correlation between patients that have TMD, especially in the inflammatory component of it and pain. Patients with a sleep apnea tend to not gain uh, get as much REM sleep. And people that don't get enough REM sleep suffer from a condition called hyperalgesia, which means that a higher perception of pain. So for a lower level of a stimuli, they actually tend to perceive pain a lot more. So if you're in TMD and pain management, you must, you must screen patients for sleep. So now all of a sudden you look at this little circle that we have here and we can see sleep can impact everything that we do in industry, starting from our simple restorations that we do that are gonna get impacted by bruxism, all the way to periodontal disease, orthodontics, implants, surgery, TMD and pain. And it is for me, it was very eye-opening when I started learning all that. I got into sleep early on in my career but I always looked at a sleep as a little add-on to my practice. I had my general dental comprehensive care, and then I was doing sleep. And you know what? I wasn't as lucky as some of us today, which we are getting into this field at the right time, which I feel like we're understanding this disease a lot more. Back then it was, hey, you have a sleep apnea, we're going to give you a device. And then all of a sudden, over the years, we realized, wow, there was so much that we were not paying attention to. And as I like to say, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. And that's the problem. You know, it's the whole idea of experience. So when we go back to our clinics, I want you to start paying attention to that a lot more because that's really life-changing. And perhaps for a term that's been overused or, but I don't think it's really overused. It's life-saving dentistry. Mm. This is what we can do for our patients and help them save lives. So uh, in a hey, nutshell, I, go ahead. 
a question for you. And, and this is, I mean, just because you hit total health, I love that phrase, total health, but just because yeah. you hit that. And then you also went into the dental comorbidities. I got messaged a question. Um, what is the most common comorbidity, whether it be dental or related to total health that you see in patients who also have, you know, sleep related concern? Well, I wouldn't say the most common, but the ones that we see a lot, as I said, is high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, and history of cardiovascular issues when we look at the yeah. health. And when it comes to the dental side, it would be bruxism for sure. But the correlation between bruxism and sleep apnea is a very complex correlation. It's not as simple as what we used to think that, you know, there are some theories out there that all sleep bruxism is related to sleep apnea, and that's not correct. There yeah. is a correlational relationship. We don't know what is the causal relationship exactly and whether or not the management of it is going to help. So hopefully that answers the question there. But I would say bruxism, hypertension, uh, scalloping of the tongue, those are some of the signs and symptoms that we see, uh, high malampati scores. But in terms of the medical side, hypertension, cardiovascular risk, and diabetes. Cool. Sorry, it was just relevant. And I, I love that total health, that that verbiage right going on here. That's the that's that's a goal. No, and, that, and that is very important because even when you look at actually the whole medicine these days, this is not about just the medical health of patient anymore. It's about the integrative health. It's about the whole total health. What are we trying to do that's going to help quality of the life of our patient? How does it matter to the patient? What's mm -hmm. in it for them? Well, if I have high blood pressure or low blood pressure, what's in it for me? Well, you live 10 years longer. Same with sleep apnea. They don't care. They don't care if their number of AHIs is 90 or 10. What they care about is perhaps is feeling good in the morning. And that's where total health comes into place. But yeah, for sure. Cool. Thank you. No worries. But the take-home message that I, the first take-home message for tonight is I really want to make sure everybody goes back to their offices realizing sleep and airway assessment. See, I'm not saying management. It doesn't mean that you have to treat a sleep apnea, but assessing a sleep and airway is part of dentistry and must be part of comprehensive dental and oral health assessment. I'm assuming most of you that are taking the time to be on this webinar and taking the time out of your busy schedule, you're here because you want to do good dentistry. And what I want you to take home is you cannot do good dentistry if you're not screening these patients for their airway and for their sleep. But what is a sleep apnea? Let's spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, simply put, it's basically the collapse of your upper pharyngeal airway. That's a collapsible part of our pharynx that doesn't have any sort of a cartilaginous or bony support. So what happens is as we get a respiratory effort with the expansion of our lungs and our activation of diaphragm muscle, it creates a negative luminal pressure right in that posterior pharyngeal place in our upper pharyngeal area. And what that does that pulls in all the soft tissue in that area, including our hypo, including our palate, including our tongue, including the epiglottis, and everything gets just pulled in. In most patients, and while we're even awake, we get a neuromuscular uh, reflex. We get basically compensation that keeps the airway open. But once we go into sleep, that compensation tends to go away. And once you go into REM sleep, that compensation completely paralyzes. All our muscles, except our respiratory muscles, going to full paralysis. And that is when people with a sleep apnea get into trouble because we get a full collapse of the airway. The problem is one of the challenges in dentistry or medicine is we always look at this two-dimensional picture of the airway collapse. But the airway collapse is far more complex and far more beyond just a tongue simply falling back. Mm 
That's the pathogenesis of sleep apnea, which we start looking at it. There is so many different patterns. There is so many degrees and so many different levels of collapse that could happen. Anything from your soft palate all the way down to your hypopharynx. And the best way to study that is what we call DICE, which stands for drug-induced sleep endoscopy. These are patients that they go under sedation, they go under propofol and midazolam, and they go into a level of sedation, which is similar to our deep sleep. And then we do a nasal scope down through their nose, and we're gonna start evaluating at what level of their upper pharynx they're getting their collapse and what pattern of collapse. So what we're basically evaluating is whether the collapse happens behind the palate, whether it could happen behind the oropharynx, which is behind their tongue. The collapse could also happen just right behind the tongue base. It could be behind the epiglottis or it could be in the hypopharynx area. So every time you have an sleep apnea patients, you have to think about, well, they could have a collapse at any of these levels. That's why not every sleep apnea patient is the same. Or to make things even more complex, it could be at multiple levels and there could be a overlap between a palatal collapse and a tongue-based collapse. And then the question becomes, is it a partial collapse? Is it just a very severe narrowing of the airway or is it a complete collapse? Is it a full, complete closure of the airway? Then the configuration of the collapse matters, whether it is an anterior posterior collapse, whether it goes in an AP direction or in some patient, it's a lateral collapse. It's the lateral walls of the upper pharyngeal airway that is collapsing inwards or in some cases, it could be a circular collapse. And every one of these things mean different in terms of whether or not a certain therapy like oral appliance therapy is gonna work for these patients. So what I'm trying to get at is every sleep apnea patient is different. It's a different phenotype, it's a different endotype. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Here, for instance, we're seeing a palatal collapse in, in the level of soft palate. It's a complete collapse and it's an anterior posterior collapse. Here we're looking at a lateral collapse, which you're looking at the lateral walls of the uh, oropharyngeal part of the airway that is collapsing inward and it's a partial collapse. There are other factors that play a role in here as well. These are the physiological factors such as loop gain, such as arousal threshold, such as lung volume. And there's so many other factors that determines how severe sleep apnea gets for a patient. But key is to remember that every sleep apnea patient is different. And that is in fact why certain therapies work for certain patients and case selection and patient selection is extremely, extremely important. This is a quick overview of the pathogenesis of a sleep apnea. I wanted to kind of make sure everybody understands that. Then treatment options. So what is the treatment option for these patients? Well, the first treatment option is always the CPAP. They say when in doubt, pressurize the snout. Uh, it's a good treatment works for every patient if they can tolerate it. The problem is it's not well tolerated. There is oral appliances, there is surgical treatment, there is behavioral strategies, and there is more novel strategies that we're hearing more about, such as hypoglossal nervous stimulation or better known as Inspire Therapy, which is advertising every day in the US network these days, right? So let's start taking a look at every one of these treatments. The problem with CPAP is the go-to treatment, which has been the go-to treatment since 1983, when it was, I believe, invented by Colin Sullivan, it's not well accepted. 50% of patients or even higher, they do not wanna wear the CPAP. It saved millions of lives. It's a great treatment, but apparently we need more, especially as we start diagnosing more milder cases of sleep apnea. And that's when oral appliance therapy comes into place. 
And over the last two decades, two and a half, three decades, we've seen the oral appliances uh, go through a complete evolution. I'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. But the bottom line is they are a valid recommended alternative to CPAP therapy. If you look at the guidelines from American Academy of Sleep Medicine and Dental Sleep Medicine, 2005, 2014, it is recommended for mild to moderate cases or in other cases that the patient does not want to wear CPAP or they refuse to wear it or they fail CPAP. What is the problem with oral appliances? Well, they work for 60 to 70% of patients. Uh, overall, when you look at the literature, some of the newer devices uh, we're seeing as high as 80% almost response in patients, which uh, starts making us wondering what changed and what is the reason that the efficacy of the treatment is going higher and higher. We'll talk about that a little bit. It is preferred by most patients, but it only accounts for about 5 to 10% of the uh, treatment. So technically speaking, we have this amazing treatment option that can be used for 60 to 70% of patients but we're only seeing it being utilized for five to 10%. Why? Well, one aspect of it is the challenge is that if you look at the conventional way and oral appliance therapy was out there, not knowing who it works for, not knowing where to set the mandible, uh, taking the time, the titration to figure out whether or not a device is going to work, side effects perhaps. Uh, we know with the newer devices, those side effects are the least concern and it shouldn't be as big of a deal as what we tend to make it. Perhaps communications with the physicians, perhaps confidence in therapy outcome, long-term follow-ups. And I know, Chad, you guys do a great job of training and educating dentists on that one. There are some great challenges that oral appliance therapy have. But if you ask me, I feel like the biggest challenge is the number of dentists that are involved in this field. I've been lucky enough to go around the world almost and seeing a lot of different dentists and being part of their training and starting to realizing the reasons that they're not getting involved in dental sleep medicine goes beyond those problems that we think such as side effects. They all have their own reasons for not getting involved. A lot of times it has to do with implementation, not knowing how to keep it simple enough to be able to bring it as part of their general practice. It's not something that we get trained in dental school. It's not something that we're familiar with it. And it's not difficult. It's just different from general dentistry. It's more medicine than dentistry, I like to call it, although dentistry is part of medicine. But that's one of the biggest challenges. And until we can make it simple enough, in my opinion, that majority of dentists Right now, I believe there's only about 5% of dentists that are involved in dental sleep medicine, if I'm not mistaken. Until we get to the point that it is 40, 50, 60% of dentists, similar to all the different disciplines of dentistry, I think we're going to run into the same problem. It's the, one of the biggest problems that we see out there. And that becomes even more important if we're trying to treat more patients. If 5 to 10% of patients are getting appliances right now, and 50 to 60% of them could be getting appliances. We're talking about 10 times growth in the number of cases. That means that if you're doing 10 cases today, you will have to be doing 100 cases. And the only way to do that, it has to be in a very confident, simple, and predictable way of doing it. And that's what's very important. We need simple, accurate, predictable workflows. It needs to be in a way that any dentist that is getting involved in it has that confidence that they're doing the right thing and they got to see the respond and the right response in for their patients. We need better device manufacturing, in my opinion, more efficient, more precision devices. 
that are going to be easier to deliver and it's going to not depends on certainly just the expertise of the dentist. And we need to expand that access to care. We need to be able to provide this treatment for many more patients. We were talking about value versus price earlier, Chad. And uh, although the important thing is creating value for patients and people pay 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 for this treatment because the value is a lot more than that. In reality, I feel like if we can get to a point that perhaps even lower cost of appliances can be profitable for the dentist, we'll see more patients getting this great treatment as well. And we have to figure out how to make that happen, of course. And Giraffe. one of the things, go ahead. Uh, just, just kind of back it up because you hit on some really big stuff here. Um, going back to the reasons that dentists don't implement. Um, I, I guess, you know, you've got 99 problems, right? Yeah. And, and sleep being complicated, at least to get started, probably shouldn't be one of them. But for the for anyone who's struggling with any of these reasons you have listed here, what, what would you say, if you could say a blanket statement to get them past that obstacle, what, what would that be? And you kind of said it already, I think, but just to point it out directly for anyone here who's on the fence about doing this, what, what would you say pointedly to them? That, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, obviously, you know, proper education, proper coaching, proper implementation is key. Those are most important things. But for me, two things. It's not one thing. One is focusing on why you're doing this. It's very easy. It's not going to be uh, without challenges. It's not going to be without obstacles. But if you understand what it is that you're doing for your patients, how it is that you're impacting their lives, how it is that you're increasing their life expectancy by 15 years, or making them wake up every morning feeling great and not having headache for the first time. When you see the value of the care that you provide for them, the challenges and those obstacles becomes minute and they don't become that important anymore. So you and your team are gonna stay focused. You're like, you know what? I know it's difficult, but the gift that I'm giving to this patient is worth all the difficult time that I'm gonna go through. To me, that's key. The dentist that understood the reason for including sleep into their practice, the, the why of including sleep into their practice. We're the ones that continued and they persevered and they take as many courses as they could until they did it successfully. They figured it out. Second part of it has to do with implementation. And that's exactly what I was going to talk about was keeping it go. simple. Yeah. Keeping it simple. We tend to overcomplicate the sleep, you know, uh, it's a very complicated disease. It is a very, very complicated disease and it's a life-threatening disease. But the treatment, the treatment protocol that we're going to provide for these patients can be very simple and broken down into easy to follow steps. And I know you guys do a great job with that in your uh, products that you provide in terms of the guidance and coaching and education for your dentist. And that's what it comes down to, providing that a step-step solution that is reproducible on a daily basis. So it doesn't matter who comes in, the system's in place. And when I say simple, I don't mean easy. Everybody com like, always confuses simple and easy. I uh, use this example. I say, you know, if you want to be in shape, if you want to be in the best shape of your life, it's very, very simple. You got to eat healthy. You got to sleep. You got to wake up early in the morning and go to the gym. And guess what? You'll be in shape. Is it easy? 
far from it, right? I'm not saying doing a sleep is easy. Doing a sleep is different. It will take a little while, but you got to keep it simple. And the way to make it simple is by breaking them out into small steps, having proper systems to follow, and then following those steps on a routine basis so it becomes almost second nature to you, the same way that we do dentistry. Some of the things that I wanted to talk about in terms of how to implement it, the importance of implementation. One is case selection. Uh, I would say probably the biggest challenge for a lot of dentists that are trying to get into this is case selection, not knowing which case to treat. And the problem is the case selection does not correlate to the severity of the problem. Some people, uh, when I got into dental sleep medicine or still some people out there, they always talk about mild, moderate, severe treat mild to moderate cases and don't treat severe cases. I'm sure you've heard that before, Chad, as well. What I can tell you is some of the most complex cases that I've treated were mild cases. And some of the most easiest and rewarding and simplest cases that I've treated, the patient had severe, severe sleep apnea. AHI alone is a very poor predictor of how complex the treatment of a sleep apnea is going to be. So we need better case selection. What do I mean by that one? It's actually evaluating the patient for an oral appliance. What is their dental health? What is their oral health? What is their TMD health? What is their expectations? Are there gonna be a good patient wearing a device? Do they have the proper oral and dental health to be able to wear a device? right? Those are the questions that we got to ask. And at what position, which unfortunately, we're not able to predict that anymore, but one day we'll be able to just knowing at what level they're going to be treated. Those are the questions that we got to ask. And those are what determines whether it's a simple case, whether it's an intermediate case, whether it's a complex case. The complex case are cases that there is a lot of other comorbidities going on. There is a lot of other dental and oral health issues. Those are complex oral appliance therapy cases. So take that whole notion of AHI as a predictor of success and a predictor of cardiovascular and health risk, and as a predictor of whether it's going to be a simple intermediate or complex dental case out of your mind. As a matter of fact, AHI has almost, in my opinion, zero, zero predictability value in those three areas. We know now actually AHI doesn't actually predict cardiovascular risk as good as other parameters such as ODI or oxygen desaturation does. And the same way we know AHI does not predict necessarily treatment success, and we do know AHI does not at all predict complexity of a case. So case selection is extremely, extremely important. And treatment planning, one of the things that we do in dentistry really well is we spend a lot of time in collecting data and treatment planning a case. In dental sleep medicine, I feel like historically, we tend to ignore the treatment planning phase. I'm, and I'm not talking about just, hey, you have a sleep apnea, you need a dental device. Treatment planning goes beyond that. You know, we have awareness, we have diagnosis, we have treatment, we have treatment follow-up. And what we need to incorporate in there is treatment planning. And what I mean by treatment planning is this three-phase approach to every patient that comes to your practice. Number one, obviously, is data collection. You're going to get their medical history. You're going to get their craniofacial evaluation, dental evaluation. You look at their patient classification, any sort of a theranostic data, anything that would indicate whether or not they're going to respond or not. You're going to look at all that. But second part of treatment planning right there is not saying, hey, I'm going to make you an oral appliance. What we do in our clinic 
which is very, very helpful in terms of making the cases very predictable is what we call identifying the treatment objectives. What is patient's objectives of the treatment? Is it daytime symptoms? Is it a snoring? Is it to reduce their health risk? Is it to make their pet partner happy? What is it? What is their objectives? And what is the objective of us as a clinician in providing that treatment? And then once you put your one and two together, three is the treatment planning phase, which comes together of how do we get from point A to point B? And the answer always is usually more than one way. And those are the different, applying selection, titration, bite registration, uh, different treatment options. That's where the treatment planning is. But if we don't do a good job in identifying one, where we are today, and two, where are we trying to go? As Yogi Berra would say, is you end up someplace else. So it's very important to understand what treatment planning in dental sleep medicine means. And always, always, always define your destination. Maybe for a certain patients, just simply getting rid of their snoring while they're managing their sleep apnea with a CPAP is what they're looking for. Maybe they need a combination. We got to understand what it is that the patient wants out of the treatment and what is it that we want out of the treatment, of course. The other thing I like to always talk about is the three pillars of success in anything that we do in dentistry. You can be the most knowledgeable dentist when it comes to sleep medicine, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to implement it easy. You can do the best treatment planning. You can do the best case selection doesn't mean you're going to have a successful sleep practice. What When you look at the actual most successful practices out there in any type of dentistry, there is three different skills that is required for any sort of a new development in dentistry to be successful in your practice. And those are clinical skills, which comes with training and everything. But communicational skills and organizational skills are as important. Communicational skills is how are you able to communicate your values to the patient? And how are we able to communicate their problems and the idea that we'll be able to help them with their objectives? That's communication skill. Organizational skill is how are you going to be able to make this a team-driven part of your practice? The sleep has to be team-driven. And once you figure out those three factors, that's when you know your success is going to be almost guaranteed and it's going to be exponential. So for those of you who are looking for ways of incorporating this, look for courses, look for training, look for colleagues, look for mentorship that is going to give you all three. Just don't focus simply on clinical part of things. Some of the most successful uh, practices that I've seen in general dentistry are not necessarily the ones that have the best clinical skills, unfortunately, and vice versa. Some of the most talented and gifted dentists that I've seen out there, they don't necessarily have a successful practice. So if you want to make this a success, focus on communication skills and organizational skills, as well as your clinical skills. Obviously, technology is one of the areas that I love talking about in this area. I feel like when you look at how we used to do uh, sleep medicine 15 years ago versus what we do today, it is completely day and night. Today, my role is just to do the treatment planning. The rest of it is all done. Utilization of uh, CBCT imaging as an education tool and TMD analysis and being able to communicate. Again, communication with patients, very important. Intraoral scanning, AI, many, many things that are coming into this field that is making the clinical part of this very, very simple. It's becoming more and more important to learn that communication skill, to learn that organizational skill, and to learn how to treatment plan. The actual dental part of it, fitting of a device, 
The new devices are so good, some of these devices, that we don't do any adjustments. I actually do not remember the last time I adjusted a device in my clinic. I don't. So if you're focusing so much on how you're managing that, uh, you know, you, you got you to gotta switch. You got you to gotta move your focus into more things of how I'm going to be able to communicate better with my patients. Digital revolution in dentistry, this is one of the feasibility studies that we've done over eight years ago, which we looked at uh, digital workflow versus the conventional workflow. And the digital workflow by far was superior in terms of the amount of uh, adjustments and the amount of chair time that needed to be utilized. And I, this kind of opens up the whole discussion of precision medicine. I feel like sleep medicine is at the point that uh, with the advent of technology and all the new things that we're seeing right now, we're moving to that precision medicine. And what is precision medicine in general, when you look at the definition, is the tailoring of a medical treatment to individual characteristic of each patient. And the benefits of it would be more effective treatments, fewer false negatives, avoid side effects, better treatment adherence, eliminating trial and error, reduce mean time to treatment. This is what precision medicine is. And we can apply that to oral appliance therapy. And by doing, though, by doing so, we're gonna get way better results. We get into the phase of oral appliance therapy that is so different, again, from two decades ago. The evolution is at the point that if you ask me, this is a very exciting time to get into oral appliance therapy. The devices are getting so good. The efficacy of the treatment seems to be getting higher and higher. And the side effects and things that we used to worry about a lot seems to be not as important. And there is more important things to kind of focus on. So this is where we're heading towards. I just thought I would talk about that a little bit. What would be the benefit of oral appliance therapy? It's basically what is the definition of precision oral appliance therapy is the tailoring of oral appliance therapy to the characteristics, anatomy, or what we call phenotype and endotype of patients. And inclusive of all diagnostic tools, bite techniques, impression, OAT devices, and the goal would be to make this even a better treatment. And we are there. We're getting there. We're getting devices that are by far superior quality to what we used to. And we're seeing high success rates, as high as 80, 81%. In one of the studies that we've done recently, um, we've seen if you look at the literature uh, from late 90s all the way to 2015, 16, the overall efficacy of oral appliances always has been quoted as around 55, 60%. You actually saw me even saying 60 to 70%. But in our studies, when we've done it with some of the newer devices and we utilize the, at that point, the remotely controlled mandibular position, and we've seen as high as 81% in all comers, 81% success in all comers. So the question is not anymore whether or not this treatment works. This treatment is getting better every day. The question is, how can we provide that for our patients? How can we implement it in a way that will be simple within the practice? And as I said, if I could kind of give you a hint, it would be case selection, treatment planning, and honestly working on the communication skill and organizational skills. Uh, with that being said, I just want to give, as I said, a general overview. I want to leave it open for questions right now. Any questions, anything specific, you let me know. I would love to take those and answer those questions and hope every one of you get enough time to do all those favorite activities of yours, of course, and uh, still get to sleep like a baby. And uh, every time I look at my little two and a half year old, I get jealous of him. I tell you that much. And uh, if you're wondering when is the right time to do this, the time is always right to do what is right. And uh, let's just get us started and start helping these patients.
Yeah. So just kind of tag on to that question, you know, with the the sleeping baby photo, I was curious, you'd started off with, with a similar slide with the alarm clock. And I was just, I was wondering of the attendees here, who, who is actually getting, sorry, that's less fun. Yeah. That's a good question. Who's actually getting enough sleep. Who's actually getting the recommended seven and a half to, to nine hours uh, a night of sleep. Go ahead and raise your hand uh, for us so we can see that in the participation chat there. We do have a couple questions. We got a couple. All right. Awesome. Oh, we got five people, five of 40, um, maybe six. So that just means, guys, that we need to try harder to get sleep because sleep will provide uh, the means to do the rest. Um, well, I do have a couple questions. So we, we've some have messaged me privately and some um, are in our question answer section. So one actually applies to those treatment modalities um, and more, I guess, your application or what you see. But uh, the question is, do you treat tongue tie? Uh, and just kind of tagging into that for those of us, for those who are kind of newer, what does that mean? And uh, any information about its efficacy that you can share? Sure. It's, uh, I'm glad somebody asked that question. It's a very hot topic. And obviously, there is so many different, there's a wide range of opinions about when it comes to tongue tie. Generally speaking, tongue tie is referred to the patients that their lingual frenum is limiting the mobility of their tongue and therefore ability of their tongue to act as a uh, pharyngeal dilator muscle, the genoglossus muscle is not going to be able to move to open up the airway. And uh, it does impact their chewing, it does impact their function, it can actually impact their craniofacial development. We know that in children, it has a huge impact. It does impact their speech in some of these uh, patients. So it's a very, very big problem. And it's very underdiagnosed. Do we treat tongue ties? That's a very general question. Yes, it goes back to uh, the treatment planning. It is one of the parts of our treatment planning. In our data collection, looking at soft tissue mobility, such as, again, tongue tie and issues like that, or different type of uh, soft tissue problems, anything that is there that is part of our treatment planning and part of our treatment plan in general to be addressed. Whether or not it's going to get rid of the sleep apnea that is a different story. Is it a treatment plan to completely treat a sleep apnea? In some cases, it can. In general, case selection becomes important. And what I want to kind of get across as it comes with tongue tie, I was actually just having a discussion with an orthodontist yesterday about this. There are some papers that are unfortunately coming out and they're showing when you release the tongue tie, if it's not done properly in conjunction with myofunctional therapy, that means that retraining the tongue to know what to do with this increased ability of mobility that they're getting is can make their sleep apnea even worse. So tongue tie is an important part of our treatment planning. When to and how to release the tongue tie that requires its own kind of a, a approach and being there. But it's a very, very important thing. Every patient that you see in your clinic, if you're thinking about dental devices, you should focus on the tongue tie, of course. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you, I had a surgery, I had tonsillectomy actually, not tongue tie, but tonsillectomy several years ago, and it completely treated my apnea. And then I got older, I actually got married, gained 20 pounds, all that deal. But looking at this, my apnea came back. I'm now an appliance user again for the last six weeks. Yeah. Um, so even with tongue tie, imagine you got that same 
treatment of the apnea entirely probably is temporary based on other life conditions. Yeah. And, so. and, and remember, everybody has a different physiology and everybody has a different anatomy as well. And our job is not to just be focused on one thing. The idea is not just to treat their sleep apnea either. What we're trying to do is at the end of the day is improve their quality of life. If we're just getting rid of their sleep apnea, but they still have a tongue tie and they're having headaches and they're having all these myofascial pains, it is our responsibility to address that as well. Once you start looking at their craniofacial complex, you need to assess the whole thing before you put that full treatment plan together. Maybe oral appliance therapy is not the best option. Maybe a surgical treatment in combination with an orthodontic treatment is the best option for a certain patient. Maybe it's best for them to be on the CPAP. And that's what I mean by treatment planning. Don't be eager to make appliances. Be eager to manage and treat a sleep disorder breathing. That's very, very important. And once you look at it that way, everything is just going to go into place. Everything is just going to fall into place for you. Yeah, that, that perspective is awesome. Uh, we have another question. And since we're talking about the craniofacial structure and evaluating the um, treatment plan, uh, when does a mandibular advancement device, um, when sorry, when you do a mandibular advancement device, do you end up creating other problems? Hmm. Well, what, <laughs> I wish I could ask them, what do they mean by other problems, right? Any treatment, if we're talking about side effects, yes, any treatment that we do in medicine has side effects, right? The question always comes down in terms of risk versus benefits analysis. And what is it that we're accomplishing? And again, I'm going to go back to that treatment planning and case selection of understanding what is the patient's objectives. Yeah, I can go into talking about teeth movement and bite changes and all that. And to be honest, those historical side effects, they tend to be less and less as we see with the new precision devices because of the digital workflow and everything else. But yeah, we can, we definitely can cause other uh, adverse effects that are not uh, favorable, that are not good. That, that's called side effect. Every treatment has side effects. But the question becomes, is creating those side effects uh, justified? Are they benefiting from the treatment enough to create, which makes us actually has to be a better clinician. So you better be sure that your device, it's working to the best level. You better be sure the device that you're using, it's going to provide the best outcome. And you better be sure you work with the right people and you provide the right treatment because it can cause side effects. Is it something that we see it regularly in our clinic? This is just my point of view. No, we don't. I don't remember the last time that I actually had to stop treatment for a patient of mine because of the severity of the side effects. Do we see teeth movement and bite changes? Yes, we do. How often? Probably less than 5%. But I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean... I'll say this too. We have studies on side effects, some of which from certain companies that provide precision uh, appliances. So if you have questions on that, we're happy to connect and, and answer what you have for that. Um, let's say a patient has been diagnosed with mild obstructive sleep apnea. They have an oral appliance made and their next test is normal. This patient still wakes up tired. Why might that be? Do some appliances cause? Mm. That's another question. We'll get to part two of that. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, that, that, that's a big question. Uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record again. Diagnosis, treatment planning, right? What was patient's objectives to begin with, right? Tiredness. There is a 
thousand reasons for a patient to be tired. What is their uh, blood work look like? What is their medical condition look like? Are they on any other different medication? Are they taking any uh, anti-anxiety or antidepressants? Do they have any sort of uh, psychiatric issues that needs to be addressed as well? So there are many reasons for tiredness. Tiredness is one of those things that is very complex in treating with a sleep app, with uh, dental devices. If you remember, initially I was talking about simple intermediate complex cases. The moment my patient's chief concern is tiredness, automatically they become an intermediate or complex case. They're not simple anymore. Do they get the proper number of hours of sleep? Do they have proper sleep hygiene? Do they exercise? What is their diet like? What is their inflammatory status of their body is? How well do they take care of themselves? One of the things I would say is uh, in cases like that, it's always best to work just like anything else in a multidisciplinary team and being able to look at their overall health and total health in general as well, looking at their blood work, doing a full blood panel, understanding, is it vitamin D deficiency? There's so many things that could be causing tiredness for sure. Uh, there are even studies that sometimes, even if their AHI is better, that doesn't mean that their um, respiration is probably still good. That doesn't mean that they're getting the proper sleep architecture. They could still be having inspiratory flow limitation uh, in simple terms as high upper airway resistance syndrome. Those are the limitations of the level three sleep testing. So there could be many reasons for them to still be tired for sure. We've got some really good questions still. Um, please feel free to hang around while we, while we go through those. Dr. Sharf, you want to add anything before we get into our questions again? No, no, that was, that was wonderful. And I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, what I like about what you guys do, as I said, is that comprehensive approach to it. It's not just about the clinical side of it. It is going through how to implement it. It is going through how to create the right team. It is going through how to have the proper connections in terms of even the medical blame. And I know you and I were talking earlier, you said, you know, you wish that more people focused on the creating value for the first few cases, as opposed to figuring out how to get paid for it. And I couldn't agree more with you. Once you learn, once you get that why right, everything else falls into place. And uh, no, it's, and I would encourage anybody that's on the call, if you're thinking about getting involved in dental sleep medicine, start in the right direction, start with the right course. And I know I've heard great things about what you guys do, of course. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's jump back into some questions here. So um, that, that first question we asked about the tiredness, um, and this is kind of, we covered this a little earlier, so we can probably be brief about it, but do some appliances cause different side effects that might be the reason why patient is waking up tired? Uh, that's a very good question. Do some appliances cause more side effects? Um, I like to kind of refer to... Um, literature on that one. Unfortunately, we don't have enough literature on that one. But what we do know and what we do see clinically is as we're moving toward more, more precision devices, we're not seeing those side effects as much clinically. And I want to put a disclaimer there. Obviously, there needs to be more research. Obviously, there needs to be more data on that one. But personally, when I look at the devices that I used to use 15 years ago versus what I use now, there is a big difference and there is a big difference why there would be different side effects. Do we see a, a big difference in the efficacy of the treatment? As I said, we've seen a 26% gap between 55% of old literature and 81% of modern literature. So the answer would be, is every appliance the same? That I can tell you in my opinion, it's not. Not every device is exactly the same and you have to figure out 
which one it is that works best for you for sure. Um, if I can just add to that, just from working with dentists, the dentists that are most confident in their appliances are the ones that have tried them. Yeah. So um, let us know if you want help with that, but try them out, try the ones that you're looking at and, and see how they feel in your mouth. Best testimony to treatment you'll find. And, and go beyond just moving teeth and side effects and all that. Look at every aspect of the device. How is it manufactured? What is the material that is used? What is the ease of, the ease of use? How compatible is it with digital workflow? I'm a big fan of digital workflow. Everybody knows that. And if I can tell you one thing, if you're getting into sleep, get in there digitally because it's not just a matter of convenience. It's better treatment. We know that. So you got to look at everything when you look at these devices, for sure. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we got, we got a, a question from our friendship over in Atlanta or in Georgia. Um, if you referred a patient for airway treatment, but they have significant need for dental treatment, do you refer for a CPAP until dental is complete? Or how do you incorporate appliances throughout dental therapies? I love that question because that's the reality of dental sleep medicine for a general dentist. What do you do? You know, and the answer would be uh, definitely, definitely CPAP is always on the table. Always, 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 always. Uh, assessing the medical risk. What is the level of a sleep apnea? That becomes very important. And what is their chief concern again? Whether let's say, whether they have an AHI of four or five and their chief concern is a snoring, then maybe we'll tell them, well, we can get through the dental treatment first leave them kind of observed method instead of putting them on a CPAP or even looking at more uh, uh, non-invasive treatment options such as laser therapy, night lays. We do that in our clinic as well. Any kind of modality that would help them, even lifestyle modification. But the bottom line is definitely, definitely dental treatment comes first because you got to look at this as a chronic lifetime management. If the teeth are not healthy, the device is not going to fit. One of the other things that we've done sometimes is making them devices that do have a liner perhaps. And as we're going through the treatment, we can reline the device. Or if it's just a simple number of uh, devices, we can actually adjust as we go forward. So again, backing to that personalized treatment, the idea would be we want to manage the sleep apnea as soon as possible, regardless of the modality, whether it's going to be CPAP, whether it's going to be something else that manages it throughout the time, finish the dental treatment as fast as you can. And that's one of the things I love about having it in our general practice, because it motivates patients actually to go ahead with their general dental treatment as fast as possible. So they can actually start wearing their device. We do so many, even ortho cases just for the patient to be able to wear a more comfortable device. And as soon as you go over that whole thing, they're like, well, if you're going to make me a device, should I make my teeth straight first? Then obviously the same question that it was just asked by chip comes up, then what do I do in the meantime, right? There are some devices that you can wear over your clear aligners. Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't had great success with them personally, but I know some of my colleagues that they do great work. The bottom line is remember CPAP is always a good option while you're doing the dental treatment. Yeah, uh, and I will say, I mean, Throughout to one of our sponsors, um, Better Night is is one of our CPAP partners, and they have a CPAP compliance of over seventy percent. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's actually so. Schedule called us. We can chat with you about details of that. They've got some really cool pieces to their um, well, how they help patients with that. So, um, I, I actually, I'm sorry, Simi, I have been saving this question 
from the beginning. I do have a couple more after that, but it's a really big question. And I think, I don't know that we can get to all the details in this call, but uh, how do you screen for <laughs> sleep apnea? <laughs> well, how do I not, right? Uh, I would say it really depends on your practice. There is always the questionnaires. There is always validated questionnaires that you can use to create a very systematic approach. Uh, stop bank questionnaire. You can use Epworth as in terms of for tiredness. It's not really a questionnaire for sleep apnea. Uh, Berlin questionnaires. There are many questionnaires that you can use that could be part of your medical history. The other side of it is our hygiene program. Our hygiene is huge in screening patients for sleep apnea from signs and symptoms, from grinding, bruxism, abfractions, scalloping of the tongue, high malampati scores, soft tissue signs and symptoms, and all that. Three is chart reviews. For us, chart reviews are huge in general dental practice. Every patient that comes into our clinic two weeks prior to uh, coming into for their clinic, our assistants, our hygienists, our team members are looking at their chart or looking at their medical history. And once you look at the medical history, the moment you see diabetes, high blood pressure, male over 50, to me, that's a red flag for a sleep apnea. So I would say a combination and just keeping up the dialogue making sure your patients know how sleep matters and how does it relate to dentistry. But I'm sure you have a lot to add to that chat as well. That's what you guys do. Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit it on it all. Um, the biggest thing I'll say though, is, is just to add to that, because you had all these pieces, there's basically the cornerstones of screening. Um, you have to make sure that your team can talk about it. Your team can connect with your patient about it. And the most important thing is that your patients don't feel like you're trying to fix them. So you have to be addressing the problem and not fixing the patient. Mm -hmm. We know that we're trying to fix the patient's airway, but no one wants to be saved. So that's one, that's probably one of the biggest constant sections in our two day course. We talk to the team. So your hygienists don't hate you when you add something else to their schedule. Um, we talk about verbiage, how to keep it short and sweet and how to get patients to test because that is the bottom line. If you know they have a problem, they have to do a test to qualify that problem and also start this process that Trash is talking about, the treatment planning process. No, I love that. I love the way you said it. It's, it's not about fixing the patients at all. It's about making sure the patients know there is a problem and making sure they understand what that problem is and then just leave it at that. And what our role at that point is going to be is if the patient wants a solution for their problem, then... We're there to provide that solution. And that's when everything else falls into place. Otherwise, if your job is to go in there, your intention is to fix them, it's going to be very hard, very, very tough. But I love what you said. I, nobody likes to be saved. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. they don't. Um, yeah, there's like, so that, that's like, we call it our hero positioning curriculum. It, there's an entire outline that we go through with your team on that course about that topic. So, Yeah. Uh, one quick question I'm going to take is someone asked earlier, will there be a recording? Um, yes, guys, there is a recording that will be sent to you in the email today. Um, and also it'll be posted on our website tomorrow or actually later tonight. If you check in about two hours, it'll be there. Um, I had a really interesting question. I don't know if you have an answer, um, but what what range of that upper airway collapse? You showed that diagram that they're using the endoscopy, um, endoscopy for what range or what part of the collapse pattern are typically responders to appliance therapy? 
So the ones that don't respond to oral appliance therapy are the ones that tends to be concentric collapses and the collapses that are in the velopharyngeal level. So okay. those are the tough ones. Uh, the oropharyngeal anterior posteriors, those seem to respond really well. And that's one of the things that is used DICE for uh, treatment response prediction and what we call the phenotyping of the patients. Cool. All right. That was a, I'm glad it was succinct. I didn't know if it was that easy to answer. So yeah. um, last question I've got, unless there's any more questions from the, the audience tonight was, um, do you have any verbiage to assist in determining what success looks like for patients in treatment? Hmm. That's, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, I'm going to go back to my slide about, again, treatment planning is understanding what was the patient's objective of treatment, not what my objective of treatment was. If I can address my patient's chief concern, that is success. If I can provide what my patient asked for, at least improve it. I'm, I, you don't look for, for me, success doesn't come with perfection. Success comes with my patient's feeling and knowing that they've been heard and their concern has been addressed. I don't know if that answers the question or not. At the end of the day, it's all about the patient. My job is to make sure medically they're well taken care of as well. And they're definitely treated. If I'm going to put a device in there, I better make sure their AHI is going to meet the criteria that we're looking for. But the most important thing is my patients leaving the clinic happy, living a healthier life, uh, having a better quality of life on a day-to-day -day basis and having a bigger smile on their face. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, we did have one more uh, question pop up. You said that you were getting less side effects and fewer kinds of other issues because using a digital workflow isn't all dependent on the George Gage record primarily. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, uh, what I do know is I, I kind of call it, a, it's like a success. Digital workflow is all or none, right? Obviously, byte registration is a very important part of the process. Uh, I don't think it's the most important part of it, perhaps. That's just my own gut feel. I think there is a lot more that goes into it. I think every part of it should be consistent. You're only as good as your weakest link. Obviously, if you're getting a, a, a non-bad bad bite, I'm putting quote unquote, whatever that means, you're probably going to have more side effects, right? But if you're getting a perfect bite, but you're having a very poor manufacturing and very poor processing, that could easily, easily negate your bite registration. Let me put it in perspective for you. There are some studies that we've looked at in terms of the bite that gets sent to a dental lab versus what comes out of a dental lab. And you'll be surprised that in some of the devices that got back, there was overall more than five to six millimeter of what we call global variants. That means that they were five to six millimeters away from where you took your bite. So going back to what the question was, doesn't matter how good of a bite you take, if that bite doesn't get transferred in your final product, uh, that bite is not playing any role. But if you have a bad bite to begin with, then you're doomed. So yeah, that's a, that study is a really 
cool study. Um, yeah. Also kind of terrifying sometimes, but um, we did have another question. Um, how do you tell if a patient needs more than 80% titration or protrusion <laughs> for your complex patients? You're I getting know. all the clinical ones now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, that is, uh, thank you for uh, bringing that question up. The slide that I had is from the times that we had the matrix at that point, knowing exactly in advance where the titration needed to be. There are ways, of course, for patients when we do dice, we can determine in a point the level of the titration, but there is no easy way of knowing that without any sort of a theranostic data. So uh, I think it was Dr. Kratz that asked that question. Very good yeah. question. I should edit that slide for sure. Um, and I think, and actually this is, I was going to ask you after, but since we're talking about it, you had mentioned uh, the matrix unit, for those that don't know, was a very cool piece of technology um, that did manual or um, remote titration for patients while asleep, while testing them and evaluated the ODI to see efficacy. is really cool. Um, and you had mentioned this earlier, AHI and RDI versus you know ODI and various um, indicators for success. Um, so we'll, we'll have to connect. I'd love to see if we have any studies. We might have some in our physician uh, yeah. library too, but studies on those numbers, because I know at the AADSM this year, that was a big topic, AHI yep. and its relevance to treatment. So, And we're moving a lot more towards oxygen-based parameters, such as, uh, as I said, hypoxic burden is going to be really important, uh, time below 90%, there, all that is stuff that is going to be really, really important to look at. Cool. Well, um, I think that's all the questions for tonight, guys. So we're going to wrap up this meeting. Your CE links are in the chat. If you missed it, it will be emailed to you with the recording, with the information about our upcoming course. And remember, guys, the, the big thing here is focus your perspective on helping people, mm -hmm. not on providing appliance therapy. If your focus is there, that's going to be where the results come from. Uh, you said it really well. And uh, the time is always right to do what is right. You know, just to start it. And if we can be any help and part of your journey, by all means, thanks for the invitation chat. It was a pleasure for sure. Awesome. Alrighty, everyone. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Dr. Shresh. Thank you all. Have a good evening. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakenasleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken2sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.